This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning and welcome to the first Conversation Hour for 2023. I'm Rochelle Hunt, your co-host today, Jonathan Kendall from ABC Gippsland. And Jono, it's usually this time of the year, right, when we hear the phrase New Year, New Me... (laughs) Our appetite for change is pretty high, let's face facts, in January. And it might be you or someone else that you know that at the moment is saying, I'm going to give up sugar or carbs or caffeine or alcohol. And that's generally because we have overdone things over the last month or two. But all of that is changing. Well, yeah, and and that's what we're trying to gauge today. Yeah, thanks, Rochelle, and good to be back for 2023. Alcohol is a big one, as you mentioned there, because... Giving up alcohol now seems to not just be a beginning of the year fad because more and more of us are just wanting to or have stopped drinking altogether. And it feels like maybe the reactions mm. from others around being sober and not having a drink has changed over the past 10 years. I know. Who would think that we could ever shake that ingrained image that Australian culture has? It's almost our national identity to have a drink in hand. It's like was seen as a national sport of ours. And it was once seen as socially not accepted to not have a drink. You know, you might even camouflage the fact if you're just having a a soda water or mineral water, you might lie and say that it was a gin and tonic or people would question you and say, come on, have a drink. But all of that, is changing and it's been changing fairly rapidly over the last 10 years and there's even a growing movement to make sober sexy. Yeah, I think I have previously got a soft drink and then put a stubby holder over the top of it just so that no one can tell it. It's not an alcoholic drink. That's not bad, I like that. No, but you're going to hear from someone described as the poster girl for sobriety in a moment and she says it's much easier being sober now than it was 10 years ago and that the industry and venues are waking up to what their customers actually want. So... Have you noticed a change in drinking culture in your circle? And have you given up alcohol? What's helped and what has the reaction from friends and family been? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne, Jonathan Kendall with you in ABC Gippsland. And Jono, I remember discussing this on air close to 10 years ago that the younger generation, those that were maybe at drinking age or younger, hadn't taken up drinking, that there was a fast decline in young people choosing to drink. And at the time, right, the reaction on air from older people, it has to be said, (laughs) was that's because they're all doing drugs. Now, (laughs) Right, right, okay. That's not the case and that's not what the research has told us. And I'll be fascinated to hear today that over that 10 years, if that generation then has influenced the next generation and as a result, that's the reason why we're starting to see non-alcoholic drinks going through the roof and being sober a normal part of our society. Yeah, that's it because alcohol is so tied up in the Australian cultural identity and our national identity. You think about Bob Hawke with the, you know, mm. at the cricket or whatever. You think about 18th birthday parties and 21st birthday parties and that rite of passage that for so long people have thought about alcohol as being really tied to that. And I'm wondering if we're starting to unpick that now, if that is actually starting to come apart or not. And I'm really um, fascinated to mm. find out today if that is the case. Can we change our image? This text already, Rochelle and Jono, great topic. I was furious to discover not a drop of alcohol-free beer when at the MCG for the Boxing Day Test Match. The new generation of zero alcohol beers are excellent. It shouldn't be that hard to supply something better than that sickly sweet lemonade at premium sports events. Maybe it's time to make it a condition of license. Oh, okay. I'd call you, but I'm working. That's from Jenny, who's in (laughs) Melbourne and so very thirsty, apparently. Well, one woman that's nodding along, of course, is Jill Stark. This is the poster girl that you were referring to earlier, Jono. Author of multiple books, including When You're Not Okay, Happy Never After and High Sobriety, Mental Health and and mental health advocate, and now 10 years on, has re-released your book, Higher Sobriety, My Years Without Booze. Jill Stark, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Thanks, Rochelle. Good to be here. 10 years, you would have seen a, a lot of changes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's an entirely new landscape. When this book first came out, it was a pretty lonely place to be as a 
sober person and I think it, it made such an impact back then because it wasn't really something we were talking about. We didn't have a national conversation about the way we drink and that's really changed over that time. And so what I wanted to look at in the new chapters of the book is, is exactly that, what's changed for me and what's changed for the wider drinking culture. And as you say, young people are really leading the charge for this sober curious movement, which is really surprising because, you know, I was the health reporter for the age, writing about alcohol during the week and then writing myself off at the weekends. <laughs> yeah. And the health experts were telling me they we had a we had a series in the age called the alcohol time bomb because this was a generation about to blow themselves up with drinking. And to see that shift, that generational shift is really fascinating. And I think there's a number of reasons for it. But one of the reasons is drinking just doesn't have the same social capital that it used mm. to have. And I do wonder if we'll look back 20 years from now, the way we look at tobacco and the way that that that's smoking was just such a... used to be able to smoke in the office and <laughs> we smoked everywhere. I wonder if drinking will have the same um, evolution that we've seen with uh, smoking. Yeah, yeah. And this, that's really interesting. I remember some of this coverage. I think there was a front page in the, the Good Weekend or a feature story in the Good Weekend about it and about the damage that alcohol causes and how it is Australia's most damaging drug. When we're thinking about, you know, hospital admissions and emergency departments, it is Australia's most most damaging drug. But there's a, a couple of terms that I'd like you to help me out with here, Jill. So um, the first one, sobriety coach. What is a sobriety coach? <laughs> Well, just just on your your um, point about it being a, a harmful drug, it's also the only drug we have to justify not taking, <laughs> you know, yes. because drinking is not only socially um, accepted, it's kind of socially expected. Um, a sobriety coach, there's a lot of people, um, largely women of my age in their 40s and that middle-aged sort of um, generation who many of them, particularly during the pandemic, that's when a lot of us looked at our drinking habits. I, I was already sober at that point, but a lot of people really found how much they drink during lockdown because there was nothing else to do and you couldn't no mm. longer blame it on it's just a social thing. Because and it was were, easier too. Like yeah, cocktails yeah. getting delivered to people's well, doors. Well, it wasn't. And that wasn't, didn't happen by accident. The industry very aggressively marketed um, their products as a coping tool during lockdown, which obviously we know that alcohol is a terrible therapist and not, not your friend when you're trying to deal with um, stress and a global pandemic. But I think a lot of um, women who obviously took on a lot more of the, the domestic load and we know that the um, the impacts of the, the pandemic disproportionately affected women and a lot of them emerged from that period thinking, I need to change the way mm -hmm. that I drink. And so there's there's coaches, there's, there's, there's people who have gone sober themselves and have sort of wisdom to share. Though I should say that there's... That, these are not clinical clinicians or therapists, they're just people with lived experience so should be cautious when you hire a coach that it's you're not talking to a doctor but it's people who share their own experience of giving up alcohol and help other people to do the same what were the other terms Jono that you oh, wanted to things work like sober curious <laughs> what is what's sober curious Sober Curious was a term that was coined by Ruby Warrington, who's a journalist from the UK who wrote a book called Sober Curious. And I think it's a very clever shift in marketing because, you know, nobody really wants to admit that they're an alcoholic or that they have, they have a problem with drinking. But if you're sober curious, then you're just sort of tinkering around the edges. You're just sort of dipping your toe in the water. And I think it's given people permission to try it out and not have to identify in a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with um, identifying as an alcoholic, but I think labels aren't particularly helpful for people, for many people. And I think Sober Curious is a movement that's sort of saying, well, let's just see if we can try to moderate our drinking or change our drinking or to be more mindful about the reasons that we drink. And to be sober curious is to really investigate why you drink the way you do in what circumstances and how you can alter those associations. And maybe that's you or someone close to you. And if you've got someone young in your home, do they question you as well? Because when we talk about that older generation, and it is, Jill, it's our generation, the, the Gen X and older, where maybe those that are younger are saying, well, I actually don't want to mirror the behaviour behaviours and the patterns and the habits that you have. This text that says giving up seems to suggest that you can't control yourself. And there's a section in the book where you speak about a very high profile interview uh, that you did on national television and 
the difference between being labelled as an alcoholic and someone that can't control their drinking and there's someone that maybe just wants to change their drinking behaviour because there's other texts that are coming in saying stop interfering with those who choose an alcoholic drink and not to be sober. It's perfectly possible to drink and to be sober as well. So looking at all those labels and the reactions that people have to labels and how you have to put yourself into a, a certain box, is that is that yeah. something you come up against? I find it very interesting that... that People can be very defensive about those of us who choose not to drink. I am not out here telling people they must not drink. And if you're hearing that, then I would question, I ask you to question yourself, why are you being so defensive? Because generally in my experience, the people who are very defensive about me talking about sobriety have an uncomfortable relationship with alcohol themselves. Um, I, I don't think that we need to um, label people so much, but... You know, I think this idea that you have to, that, that you're not addicted if you only drink at the weekends. <laughs> Ruby Warrington in her book Sober Curious talks about the fact that she believes that every single one of us who drinks is a little bit addicted. And what she means by that, it's not that you are, you have a full-blown addiction. But if you associate, if you cannot socialize without a glass of wine in your hand, even if that's only one or two, what does that say about our need to have that liquid confidence in our hands? So, yeah, I, I think we need to take the shame out yeah. of it. It is a very addictive drug and the way that the chemical makeup of the drug makes you want more. So if you can't stop, that's not necessarily a problem with you. That's the, the nature of the drug that you're ingesting. And we'll get yeah. into dating and drinking in just a moment, Jill. Yeah. But first, Leah from Ballarat has given us a call. And Leah, has Leah, have you given up drinking, have you? Yeah. Yep. So this Friday is my two-year anniversary. Okay. Well, congratulations. Why did you do that? Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the main one being I was heading towards a pretty big problem. Um if I didn't already have one, I guess. But, yeah, I, I agree with Jill in that, um, you know, you don't have to hit rock bottom to realise you have a problem. Um, it's not so black and white. And I guess um, I started reading. I, I armed myself with information. And one of the biggest things that hit me, I was just listening to a podcast one day about a woman who went sober and she said that, you know, alcohol is a class one carcinogen. <coughs> I did not know that and I just felt so stupid. So I started reading and when I started arming myself with information, I realised that, yeah, a lot of my problems in life, a lot of my anxieties, um, lack of sleep, um, general health problems and just feeling awful all the time was due to alcohol. So Yeah, and I mean, Jill, that's what you mentioned before too and anxiety is an interesting topic that you you bring up there, Leah, because often people might think that having a drink will help reduce our yeah. anxiety when in actual fact we know now that it's doing the complete opposite, Leah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I've had an anxiety issues my whole life and always thought that having a drink would help. Um, yeah, but when, like I said, when I was started reading and reading the science behind how alcohol impacts your brain and your you know, physical functioning, I realised, ah, that's probably why it just mm. gets worse. Yeah, well, good on you, Leah. Thank you for calling through. And now that you've made that comparison, Jill, between cigarettes and smoking and alcohol, now I can't get that out of my head. And so I keep thinking down, down the track in a couple of years, are we all going to be thinking, why were we doing that? Why were we, why were we drinking so much? Uh, I mean, yeah, and Leah's right that, that alcohol is a group one carcinogen, which puts it in the same bracket as tobacco and asbestos. Um, you know, one in five cases of breast cancer are linked to alcohol. That is something we don't hear very often because the alcohol industry is very powerful. It props up the two major political parties in this country. Um, and I think... It, <sighs> We were talking about grey area drinking. That's another term that people talk about where they're not, you're not fall down drunk, but you're, you're, you have maybe more than a couple of Proseccos at Christmas. So you're in that kind of grey area drinking um, kind of place. But in high sobriety, I talked to um, an addiction specialist who told me that my drinking, which was, you know, to me just seemed like bog standard binge drinking at the weekends that all my friends were doing, it seemed quite normal. But as he pointed out to me, just because something is normalised doesn't mean it's healthy. We've just normalised it into our culture. And he described the way that I was drinking 
as pre-malignant addiction. So oh. what he was saying is you're not, you do not have a full-blown addiction yet, but this is the trajectory you're on. So it's kind of like having a melanoma or something growing in your skin that you don't get checked. And so I would say about the, the concept of rock bottom for me, and I write about this in the new chapters of the book, because I went back to drinking after my initial year off the booze and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a moderate mindful drinker. And I was for a few years. But then old habits began to creep back in. And I realized that there was no rock bottom moment for me. There was no catastrophic life altering event that I said I must stop. But um, if your house was on fire, you wouldn't wait until it burned to the ground to call triple zero. And I had little Scott fires yeah. going out everywhere and I just kept ignoring it. And, you know, I might say something stupid when I was drunk to a friend or, or blow up a friendship or um, have an injury. You know, I fell over and scarred my knee. I've got a permanent scar on my knee from falling out of an Uber when it was, you know, hilariously drunk. But that's not funny after a while. And, yeah. Yeah. and I think that's, the reflection to you, I mean, you mentioned COVID and lots of people had that time and that moment away to rethink that. Jill Stark is with you, Rochelle Hunt in Melbourne, Jonathan Kendall with you in ABC Gippsland. Plenty of texts on this. I laughed with my 40s daughter who drinks moderately when she recently expressed how odd it is that people think it's okay to ask me socially why I don't drink. I'm going to begin to ask them why do you drink? <laughs> I love it when you flip that around. And this it says, fascinating topic. I never resumed my levels of drinking after having drinking long service leave when I was pregnant. It made me really think about why I was drinking when and how much. I'm now very aware of when to stop. And let's face it, kids don't respect a hangover. But I also feel better for it. And I used to be very good at drinking. But I want to read this one. This is from Paul in Gisborne. And anecdotally, I've been speaking to other parents who are talking about when and how and if you introduce alcohol to young people and some of those theories around that and some of those theories maybe that have been handed down to us. And this says, hi there, re-drinking culture in Australia. It's still very much alive and well. I have a 16 and an 18-year-old and I can tell you that over the Christmas holidays... Uh, the Torquay 18-year-olds and his mates didn't seem to be holding back at all. The 16-year-old has also told me about some of the parties she's been to where the parents supply the drinks. How our parents drink and how that culture is handed down to us, that's something I think that we've inherited, mm. Jill, in our age bracket. But that will be interesting to see what the next generation Inherits. Yeah, but I mean, my parents were very liberal with the way that they drank at home and we were allowed to drink as teenagers in the house. But, you know, for every for every person who grew up in a household like that who went on to be a binge drinker, you'll have someone else who was in a very strict um, household who also went on to become a binge drinker. You know, I think our parents do play a role, but the wider culture, I think, is, is far more important. And one of the reasons, I, yeah, I, I completely take the... Um, the caller's point that it still is the predominant culture to drink and that a lot of young people are doing that, but it is changing. It is shifting. And one of the really important things that has shifted is back then when I quit drinking in 2011, there was no sober role models. There was nobody out there, because that's what we haven't talked about yet, about the joy of sobriety, the things that you can actually benefit from from not drinking. All we hear about is, you know, the, the kind of woes of alcohol. But there was no one out there saying to me that I could have a fun and fulfilling life yes. without drinking. Everyone was just you're not like, missing out on anything. you're just going to be boring and dull and your life is going to be over. So I think what we've seen is this huge growth on TikTok and Instagram and other platforms of young, as you said at the start of the, the show, young people showing that sobriety can be almost an act of defiance, an act of rebellion. It can be sexy. It can be subversive. And young people like to be part of a counterculture. And I think we're starting to see that. It's like they don't want to be like their parents. They want to try yeah. something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's interesting. It's an interesting kind of uh, PR change, I guess, or marketing change. Mm. Uh, I'm interested to get this perspective of city versus country as well, because I know in a lot of regional areas, there's a really strong drinking culture. Amy Armstrong is founder of Dry But Wet and, and an advocate for non-alcoholic drinks being available in regional bars. G'day, Amy. Are things changing with Australia's drinking culture? Oh, good morning. Um, yeah, I think things are definitely changing, as as Jill just alluded to. Uh, especially in the younger generations, we're seeing an awful lot of um, more moderate drinking, more mindful behaviour, 
uh, around alcohol and um, kids are just more health conscious in general, I think, than, than what we certainly were. When we talk about regional Victoria and all of the dangers that come along with you know, maybe drink driving and education and distance, all of those things, is regional Vic at where city parts are when it comes to choices? Of, I mean, we have complete alcohol-free alcohol venues. <laughs> um, mm. So where do we look at there when we look at the difference between the two? Uh, well, I think as in Melbourne, it sort of it very much depends on place to place. There's still an awful lot of venues in Melbourne that don't have any non-alcoholic options. Um, and where I am in in Southwest Victoria, we have a pub here who has an amazing non-alcoholic offering, and there are bars that are certainly um, including better options in the in their offerings. So I don't think it's like a, a general, uh, you know, one one. One size fits all approach with regional versus Melbourne. It's it's it's, but it is becoming more widely um, available. The better non-alcoholic options. Mm. And I mean, we're talking about this today, non-alcoholic drinks, and there's a bit of hype around the non-alcoholic drink kind of <laughs> industry, I guess. But is that backed up in how many people actually are buying non-alcoholic mm. drinks? Oh yeah, the the um, increase in purchasing and what's available on the market is just exponential. So you're seeing an incredibly dramatic rise in um, the retail value and the um, what what is being purchased. It's, it's hundreds, you know, the, sorry, the market value is really, really on a steep incline. Yeah, the, the non-alcoholic drink sector has grown. It's the fastest growing category of drinks. You know, you, you yeah. now have um, non-alcoholic beers in some bottle shops outselling alcoholic versions. Like that's the shift that we have seen. And I think what's really interesting is it's being led by people like Amy who are going into venues and saying, why do you not have more options? And we're seeing, you know, 10 years ago when I wrote High Sobriety, I spoke to a very senior person in the hospitality industry here in Victoria who, when I was talking to them about, you know, non-alcoholic bars, which we saw start to pop up in Ireland, you know, not, not a country known for its, <laughs> its temperance movement. <laughs> and, and they said to me, well, that would never work here in Australia and literally laughed in my face. And now, we, you know, we have Brunswick cases, as you said, the non-alcoholic bar here well, in one Melbourne. one of the big alcohol distributors has, I don't know if it's still running, but they have Dan Murphy's had a, a non-alcoholic. They had a pop-up bar. A pop-up and venue. I think, I think yeah. that's you know. I obviously I write a lot about the alcohol industry's not known for its social responsibility. I'm pri- <laughs> I'm quite cynical about their move into that space, but I think they just see there is money there. Mm. They which before they thought there was no money, and so they didn't care. Whereas now people are voting with their feet, and someone like me. Is that a bad thing though? I mean, there's always going to be someone no, right, I mean, that's going to cash in and say there's money to be made there. But if at the end of the day we're getting what we want the more options we're getting the better. more options but i just i'm cynical about an organization like dan murphy's who have gone to court with aboriginal communities and dry communities to put their bottle shops in those areas i'm cynical about their motivations but as you say if, if the if the wider result is that there's more options available for people who want to not drink or drink moderately then that's yeah that's got to be a good thing in the long term and just finally amy are you noticing the shift is coming from younger people or older people is there any way of gauging the demographic i think the the shift uh, especially in terms of consumer behavior is being led by the younger generations but that's not to say there's not a massive groundswell with um, those of us that are a little bit older. I think there's a, a massive shift happening with women sort of in their 40s, 40s, early 50s, seeing the damage that they've done, you know, after they've had kids and um, moving into that perimenopausal, menopausal stage of their lives and deciding that they do need to change and that how much of an impact that alcohol has on their, um, their lives. Yeah, Amy, thank you so much for having a chat with us today on the Conversation Hour. Amy Armstrong, founder of Dry But Wet and an advocate for non-alcoholic drinks being available in regional bars. So is that you when you hear this conversation, you're thinking, you are describing me at the moment. Have you noticed a change in your circle, in the culture in your circle? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. 
Rochelle Hunter, Jonathan Kendall with you. Your guest today is, well, author Jill Stark. We're talking about that shift, that Australian culture of drinking. Are we finally seeing it change? And I want to push back a little bit or at least ask you a question, Jill, about that because you said before that there are bottle shops where they're selling more non-alcoholic beers than alcoholic beers. Where is this bottle shop? Because okay, I, don't so think it's in, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's in regional Can Victoria. I name a brand or I, I, oh, I, I can't? Can I can't. Just, so so there's, there's a very... There's a brand of non-alcoholic beer that is yeah. probably the one that you will see in every bar. Yeah. That in some, not not in Dan Murphy's, but in some of the smaller chains that this was actually reported in the media that their best-selling beer <laughs> was that brand was this oh, non-alcoholic right. brand. Okay. Um, now that that's you're seeing a lot of. And and the the owners of that brand of beer, I I talked to them for the new chapters of the book, and they said that they're seeing a lot of tradies, tradies and surfers and young guys who want to have a beer with their mains, but they still they have to get up early in the morning. And mm. you know, as Amy was saying about young people are more health conscious, that is one of the reasons. But the uh, another reason is young people have a very uncertain future. And so the researchers are not entirely sure what, why this shift is happening, but some of the research suggests that their uncertain future, a volatile job market, the fact they'll probably never be able to own their own home, they've got worries about climate change, they are looking for a sense of control in their lives and not drinking and 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 also, you know, not having pictures of them looking like a drunken hot mess well, on social, oh, media. social media. Yeah, so yeah. Should, see, let's just blame social media because <laughs> well, it's easy to blame. No, but again, but right. do you blame it or is this a good thing? You can well, say it's, it, it's, yeah. its fault, but if the end result is what you want, yeah, true. then is it bad? But yeah. I, I, And I think, as I said before, I think social media is is what I've written about in in the book is the contagion effect is now happening in reverse. So the contagion effect of people seeing, you know, I, even my Facebook memories pop up from 2009. It's like, oh, I'm so hungover. And, you know, the way that we used to boast about our big nights out, now the contagion, and that had a contagion effect where other people would see that and they would post about their big nights out. Now it's the opposite. People are posting about getting up and doing a 6.30 a.m. gym class and talking about... That's just as annoying, though. <laughs> Sure, and like, and I want to be very clear with your listeners. I am not one of those people you who's know, gone sober. And I question that often. I'm like, really? Did you get up that early? And do that? yeah, and I'm not one of these people who's 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 gone sober and is going to tell you that life is immeasurably better without it. My life is better, but it does not mean that all my problems have life been removed. Is free. That's right. Um, Text here, I stopped drinking eight months ago after a long time. Life is much better now. However, alcohol is just insidious. Going to the movies, primary school fades, giving gifts, etc. Booze is everywhere. The non-alcoholic drinks are pretty ordinary and how have they become so expensive? They are also not a solution to a drinking problem. That's from Kim. And that's the other thing too. There is research and we will be speaking to Fair a little later as well but they can be problematic they can be triggering for a lot of people someone that's looked a lot into this is james atkinson james is the host and creator and founder of drinks adventures which is a podcast and given james that this is a podcast where you actually look at alcohol you're more and more covering non-alcoholic alcohol but as this text from kim said why are they just so expensive and why are so many of them so ordinary Oh, well, thanks for having me. Um, look, I think there's definitely a sort of, you know, pretty broad array of, of products on the market. And I think there are some good ones. Um, I, don't, I don't think they're all, they're all bad. As to the cost, I mean, in some cases, I think there are sort of, um, you know, expenses that come into play, um, you know, when you're sort of utilising the sort of technology involved to create some of these innovative products. Um, but certainly it is probably hard to justify some of the costs when you, when you sort of start to understand the amount of, um, you know, excise that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, the amount of tax that's involved um, in an alcoholic product, why these non-alcoholic products aren't a little bit cheaper than, than they currently are. Um, yeah, it is, it is up for debate. Yeah, and we we're just talking, James, about what has changed over the past 10 years to maybe promote being sober or not drinking and we're talking about well maybe it's social media but is it also the increase in non-alcoholic products on the market um oh, look i think that there you know the increase in products is sort of a response to the to the changing market dynamics um and i think it's important to say that 
you know, yes, it has been happening over the last 10 years, but if you look at the ABS statistics on apparent consumption of alcohol in this country per capita, it's been declining since 19, since the mid-70s when there was, you know, 13 litres of alcohol available uh, per capita based on, you know, just the amount of alcohol that's produced um, in the country and, 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 you know, that producers pay tax on. Well, that was 13 litres per capita in the mid-70s and it's down to sort of 9.5 litres now. So it's, it's just it's steadily decreased over that last 40-odd year, 40, 50 years. So it's not really... Um, a new trend. It's just sort of a, a, an overarching trend that's been happening for quite a while. And I think really that drinks producers have just sort of been waking up more recently to the need to sort of adapt their business models and start creating products that are going to satisfy some of these people who, who are um, reducing the, or cutting out their alcohol consumption entirely. Yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting just to see how that has changed because the, the rise of the non-alcoholic drinks movement, while some of the big alcohol companies are getting on board that, I do think that the sober curious movement is an existential threat to that industry because like the gambling industry, although, um, as James says, we're drinking less, those of us who are still drinking, a lot of people are, the people who are drinking at problem levels, they're the ones that make up the largest percentage of those companies' profits, like the gambling industry. It's people who have, who drink a lot that um, contribute to their bottom line. So if we all collectively start drinking less, where does that leave the industry? And maybe that explains why the the margins on some of the non-alcoholic drinks are are higher. I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see how the industry evolves as we evolve. Yeah, but it's just so... Alcohol is so tied up in the Australian culture, right? So you look at all of the big milestone birthdays, 18th, 21st, even weddings. I mean, it's just... Alcohol is so, t- you know, you finish a wedding ceremony and what do you see? You see a couple there with with champagne. I know you could choose to put non-alcoholic champagne in there, but just it is so tied into our culture. When are we going to see that sort of start to change, do you think, Jill? Well, I think when we stop celebrating sports stars and politicians for downing a yard of ale and and you know Bob Hawke always said that he thought he was more he was more famous for downing a yard of ale at the cricket than he was for any of his his policy announcements I, I do think it's it's slowly slowly shifting but we we have to see people talking about how there is another way and yeah I mean it's interesting that even with non-alcoholic drinks, like I had people, somebody had a crack at me on Facebook the other day saying that I, I had a non-alcoholic champagne in my hand and am, am I not just part of the problem because I'm still, we're still associating celebration, commiseration, commemoration, whatever it might be with something uh. that looks like alcohol. And I think that yeah, drinks that smell and taste and look like alcohol for people, as you say, Rochelle, with a history of um, dependency, that can be a real problem. So why do we still, as as you said, Jono, putting your soft drink in a in a stubby holder? Yeah, so no but, one can but, see. But, but there is there's that, it's that sense of belonging that the alcohol industry has worked very, very hard. Um, and in, in the book, I look at, you know, internal documents from the alcohol industry that were released at an inquiry in the UK where it, they said that their, they, their purpose was to create a sense of belonging linked to their product so that you you have a beer in your hand and you are part of the crowd. And that, that speaks to us on a very primal level because as humans, we want to be part of the group. We want to belong. And so maybe these non-alcoholic drinks, I can walk into a bar and have a beer and nobody knows that I'm not drinking. But why do we still feel the need to make it look like we're drinking? Yeah. What's interesting too, and we've had multiple people say this, that yes, you can maybe go to a a nice restaurant or a hip little bar and you'll have multiple choices there but you go to the MCG on Boxing Day to watch the cricket and you can't get one. James, just finally, I mean, is it about those bigger venues and not the smaller boutique venues? It's almost like preaching to the converted. Sorry, what's... What do we need those bigger... Do we need like the MCGs on board here so that you can have a non-alcoholic option that isn't a solo? Oh, look... I'm all for there being better non-alcoholic options everywhere. I I really think that, 
you know the the way that um, people who 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 choose who are choosing not to drink or don't drink at all get treated when they go to events and even sort of you know fancy restaurants sometimes the the quality of options that there are available to people um, are terrible you know you don't really want to just have a, a coke or a you know fizzy drink of really sweet fizzy drink there should be much better options available mm. than that whether they're you know non-alcoholic versions of uh, drinks that would otherwise have alcohol or just more sophisticated sodas that, you know, aren't so sugary. Um, the old yeah, lemon lots lime of other and bitters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> James, thanks yeah. so much for your time. James Atkinson there, host, creator and founder of Drinks Adventures podcast. And we went away for a, a few days with the school family for a, uh, of all things, an aerobics nationals conference, you know, with, make, our, oh. with our kids. Would that yeah, make okay. you want to drink, wouldn't it? Well, well you know, let's say it was a long couple of days. Actually, no, it was fantastic. But there were multiple people that didn't drink and there was quite often uh, non-alcoholic beers available at most places you went to. But when there weren't, you know, the option was like a, a mocktail. I'm thinking, who wants a mocktail with the yeah. spaghetti carbonara? Yeah, and I think yeah. the, the point you were making is such an important one. How do we change a culture? When you go to the football and you can have a, a non-alcoholic beer... But these bigger venues, as you say, like I actually went onto my Instagram this morning and asked anyone who's going to the Australian Open today to let me know if they see good options there because I talk about this in high sobriety about how the tennis and every sporting event that we have is so propped up. It's sponsored by major alcohol companies. I would love to see non-alcoholic drinks at these venues. I, I Anyone who's at the tennis, let me know on Instagram if that's happening because I think, as you say, the bigger the venue, the, the, the more ingrained the pastime into our cultural fabric, when mm. we start to see non-alcoholic drinks in those places, that's when it becomes normalised and people don't have to think twice about it. They can go, oh, actually, no, I don't feel like a sixth beer. I'll have a non-alcoholic one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where I'm really interested to see if alcohol is slowly moving away from part of our national identity. And if you think it is, if you've noticed a change in your drinking culture uh, where you are, it's also tied to music in a lot of ways, mm. Rish and Jill. And you think about, you know, um, music punk festivals. music, rock music, music festivals. There's a lot of alcohol in all of those places. Lindsay McDougall knows a thing or two about this because he's a guitarist with Friends of Rom, an ace band, and, uh, and an ABC broadcaster as well. But, um, Lindsay, you've given up the drink, haven't you? I have in uh, stark um, contrast to every one of the lyrics we've ever written. Uh, I know. It's, um, uh, yeah, two years ago, actually. So, yeah, coming up, uh, it was two years at the start of this, uh, of this year, and um, it's great. And, and, and I'm very aware that every time I'm singing those lyrics, I'm like, oh, I'm drinking a, an alcohol-free beer. That's the ones, the, al- the beers sitting on top of my amber, all alcohol-free. And the thing is, though, Lindsay, you're not the only one that, you know, when nah. you've got your rider in the back, you know, in the, in the background there of whichever venue you're playing, you're not the yeah. only one that's got the alcohol-free beer. There's, like, I think it was, what, your sound engineer, but are you finding mm-hmm. that more and more people are saying, actually, Lindsay, can I have one of yours, please? <laughs> we did this uh, run of shows last year, and which started before the pandemic, called um, Spring Loaded. And so we had people like uh, Grinspoon on it, Magic Dirt, um, the UMI. And there was a whole little gang of us, uh, Phil from Grinspoon, Tim Rogers, Adelita uh, from Magic Dirt, and we were all getting into various alcohol-free things to the point where it almost got like it used to be. You know, we used to come off stage very aware, very worried that our our alcoholic beers had been stolen by the support bands, as is a rite of passage. (laughs) And now it's like, you know, I was sneaking into Grinspoon's room while they were on stage and trying to look for an alcohol-free beer to nick from Phil. Um, Yeah, it's, it's really quite nice to have that little gang of people who've been it's not like you know we've brought up prudishly everyone in those bands has had a good go of it over the oh, last yeah, 20, 25, 30 years but mm. to all be hanging out comparing you know the hops of our various <laughs> alcohol free <laughs> ipas and xpas is pretty funny and so why why did you give it up Lindsay? Well, I was, um, it happened during the pandemic and um, we got to a point, my wife and I, we weren't playing. We weren't going on tour every weekend. I didn't have to drive to the airport every Friday after finishing work here at the ABC. And actually it was my wife's uh, 34th birthday and I bought her 34 bottles of whiskey. Just to give you a little, paint you the picture of where we were at. Yeah. Um, wow. and, and then uh, that was July and in uh, September, in June, sorry. And then in September, Jen was starting a new job. And as usual, she comes up with all the good ideas in our relationship. She thought... <laughs> She thought, maybe I'll just stop because I've got to start this new job. She works outside. She works with national parks and, um, you know, she had to do a bit of fitness training and stuff. So she thought, all right, I'll, I'll stop drinking for a bit 
And so we got a, some friends of ours who run a, a, a wine delivery service in Sydney, this is during the lockdowns, to send us some alcohol-free wines. And we were a bit suspicious. And they were really great. And then come January that year, the next year, 2021, when I would normally give up um, alcohol for a couple of months anyway, just as a, as a thing, I started drinking alcohol-free beer and was absolutely blown away by how good it was and how much, not only the tastes were okay and they've been getting better over the last couple of years, but that feeling of cracking a beer on a yes. hot day, yeah. it's the same. I know. Yeah. And Jono and I were talking about this off air. I wonder how much of it is placebo. So my husband yeah. and I have discovered the alcohol-free gin and tonics, the pre-made oh, yeah. ones. They taste like a gin and tonic and yeah. it's that placebo effect if maybe you just really feel like a glass of something or you're a bit stressed or whatever that moment of pressure you feel when you would normally reach for something alcoholic you have something non-alcoholic that tastes good mm. and the moment passes it's a sense of um, ritual and ceremony that comes mm. with having the drink and as Lindsay says like I love having a, a beer on a hot day, cold beer on a hot day is nothing better mm. than that but Yeah, and I think the first time I had a non-alcoholic beer was there wasn't anything like this when I quit drinking in 2011. So but when I first had one this time around, or three, three and a half years ago now, I felt in the first sort of few seconds like, oh, this is making me drunk. You know, like I felt that <laughs> yeah. sort of sense. Of, and it, it's such a powerful placebo effect, which is why we, we say, you know, obviously people who have a history of substance abuse and an issue with alcohol need to be really careful with these yeah. drinks because our brains are, we, our, it, we, our brains make associations. So a beer on a cold day, you know, a gin and tonic when you're in a backyard barbecue, whatever it might be, like we make these associations and we think that it will give us pleasure. And that's, they've, they've done that research around the, the 20 minute effect. If you have alcohol, you get the rush of dopamine and after 20 minutes, it's the law of diminishing returns. You try to regain that and drink more and more and you never quite get it back. So yeah. being able to have a non-alcoholic drink and have that feeling without all the drama is, is nice. <laughs> it's something about getting a cold can out of the fridge and then cracking the yeah. can, I reckon. It's, that's for me. But, um, Lindsay, have you, um, I mean, are, have you become a better broadcaster, a husband, a better musician? <laughs> just All a of those person? you'll have to ask someone else. <laughs> no, I've got to say, the, um, the things that, uh, that maybe alcohol was, was masking, you know, your sort of tendencies towards uh, OCD or ADHD or any of those kind of things, there's, all it does is maybe just let you know that those things are still there. And, and anxiety, I still feel anxiety. I'm quite an anxious person. But... You know that if you're an anxious person, the morning after, mm. that fear you get, that when you wake anxiety. up... Anxiety. The, the anxiety, exactly. <laughs> and, and you just sort of go through maybe not what you've done, but maybe the way you've treated people or how you've, you know, just, even just the, 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 the attacks on your body from drinking so much, all of that's gone. And My girlfriend and I, I think the anxiety is so high on the list here. We talk about the waking up at, you know, and even if, like, you're not drunk, right? But you've just, mm. you've had a drink maybe a couple of nights in a row and then you're like, you wake up at two in the morning and the guilt <laughs> and the stress <laughs> that you give yourself at two o'clock in the morning. And it's more about what am I doing? What am I doing to my body? What does my daughter think of me? All of those things race around in your brain. Lindsay, is it easier given that your wife is doing with this with you yeah. as well? Like, do you need yeah. a partner in crime? I reckon so, and I have a partner in crime on the road as well, our, our drum tech, who uh, he and I share, and also people like Phil from Grinspoon. But, um, yeah, absolutely it is. And I think that – but that is – in life in general, anything you do, you know, I think having a, uh, a willing collaborator is always a great idea. And I was pretty worried too, going, taking this to, on tour with Frenzel Rom and going, how is not only the band going to take this, but also the crowd? But I've been so surprised meeting, you know, it's just another thing to talk about. And I'm not one of those people that hides it behind a beer coaster, a beer holder. In fact, I'll have a stubby <laughs> holder with a brand of alcohol-free beer in it. What are you trying to say, Lindsay? Are you Nothing. saying I'm a coward? Is that yes, what you're saying? Yes, no, yes. You enjoy, enjoy your sneaky little lemonades. That's fine, Jono. Uh, no, but I, I love having that conversation. So I, and I spend a lot of time at the merch desk, usually with a mask on these days, but chatting to people about the fact that I'm drinking an alcohol-free beer and how weird it is and how, what a hypocrite I am, whatever, but talking to people about the, the fact that I'm doing it and so many other people at our um, shows, and maybe it's because our audience skews a little bit older now, um, and we have parents with their kids at our shows. But yeah, they're doing it as well, and it's it's kind of just a cool thing to talk about. That is more than just hey, remember that time twenty years ago when you know you you, you saw us at the big day out or whatever. You know, there's been a shift when you say that people like yourself, Lindsay McDougall, <laughs> Adelita, Tim Rogers, you yeah. know, Phil from Grinspoon, 
if this is the crew that's drinking non-alcoholic alcohol, then you know that there has been a huge shift. It's a really strong image. But thanks so much for your time, mate. We appreciate it. No worries at all. Have a great week. See you. Lindsay McDougall there, friends, or Rom guitarist. Of course, you'd know him as well as ABC broadcaster. Plenty of texts on this, including when is alcohol advertising going to be banned, just like tobacco. And when we talk about big sporting events and the way that alcohol is or isn't promoted and associated with those big events, I do think that that will have to be the next big shift if it's not online gambling, but let's not go there. <laughs> yeah. But that... There has we to, to be. Can we just talk about Formula One for a minute, right? Like at the end of the Formula One race, three people stand on a podium and shower each other in champagne. Like, what, yeah, and what? I always, I always find it strange that a you know a sport that is you know very very fast cars driving at high speed and they're all yeah, sponsored and you need great by reaction. Yeah, but the champagne whiskey. sponsoring um, or a sparkling wine that's sponsoring the tennis at the moment, and I saw on one of the mainstream news channels what was supposed to be a, a news piece, which actually just turned into an ad for a, yeah. a brand of sparkling wine. I was looking at it, and after five minutes, I was like, really? I, I, I'm not well, sure Well, but used to, in, in the AFL, the, the substitute used to be sponsored by one of the biggest beer companies in this country. <laughs> so it yeah. would be called the such-and-such substitute and so you'd have these elite athletes running onto the field with this group one carcinogen on the back of their shirt like it's just it's just a bizarre sort of i think once you stop drinking you you kind of start looking at these things in in a way where you think this is just bizarre that we do we do this but yeah that's the culture that we've created yeah that is that's australian culture at the moment but are things changing one three hundred triple two seven seven four katarina georgie is the ceo of fair which is the foundation for alcohol research and education g'day and welcome katarina now do you think things are changing in australian society with alcohol yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been great to hear the conversation today and to hear how things have been changing in everyday lives because we've certainly seen this reflected in the data. So with young people particularly, we're seeing more of them choose not to drink alcohol. So about two decades ago, we had the majority of young people saying that they drank alcohol. And now we've got about three quarters saying that they haven't had a drink up until they turned 17. Isn't it um, fascinating? Because there was a real push, it feels like not that long ago, but when I think back now, it's probably 15 years or so ago, looking at Pops and looking at how and where and the sort of marketing that we have around certain flavoured alcohol and it's all just marketing to children. I think it's a very similar conversation we're having now about vaping. But do you see that change there, Katerina? Yeah, there has been a huge shift and, and that conversation all happened at the peak of that risky drinking among that young population group. But this change that we're seeing is actually happening across the globe. And so there's been lots of research into understanding why it's the case. And it's come down to a, a couple of big, broader cultural theories. So one is that uh, there've been a lot more open conversations between parents and kids about alcohol, a lot more trust between parents and kids. Um, what some people would even call helicopter parenting uh, that follows people into their later lives, that closeness has made a change. And the second is that young people are more focused on their future, their career, their lives, and they don't like that loss of control. They don't like that potential depiction on social media. And they think about those things and that risk-taking in ways that generations didn't 20 years ago. What about this movement towards sober raves or clean parties or, you know, conscious club nights, those sorts of things. Is that, is that catching on? <laughs> well, is it catching on or is it really, you know, is, is alcohol and, and drugs, I guess, tied up in, in partying? Well, I think, you know, largely alcohol is still very tied to socialising and going out. You know, as Jill has said, alcohol companies spend many millions of dollars telling you that the way to unwind, the way to celebrate, the way to commiserate is to have a drink. And that's still very much the cultural norm. But there absolutely has been more alcohol-free products available in the market and more people who are choosing not to drink alcohol. So now one in five Australians say that they haven't had a drink in the last year. Uh, and that's doubled over wow. the last decade. That's a huge number. That's it really is really impressive. It is that global or is that just Australia? Do you know? Like, is that this trend happening in other countries? Yeah, absolutely. In countries that are very similar to Australia, we're seeing a similar impact. And that's all being driven by those younger generations 
who are drinking less or cutting back and then continuing that trend into their 20s. You know, for those older age groups or those people who were drinking at really risky levels 20 years ago, they're largely continuing to drink at risky levels later on in their life. And I heard you earlier talking about parents, for example. You know, one thing we have to think about is now a lot of these parents are people who drank at really risky levels when they were teenagers. And so they're thinking about their experiencing their experience as a teenager and parenting in a particular way when often their kids have a very different experience and, and aren't looking at alcohol in the same way that they were. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, thank you so much for your thoughts, Katerina. Katerina Georgie is the CEO of FAIR, the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education. And there you go, Rish. It sounds like what we've been talking about today is backed up by the numbers but um, I'm wondering if this is the thin end of the wedge like is, is this going to be like smoking in mm. that in a couple of years time we will all look back and, and just think why why were we but doing when that? we look at smoking and the changes that we saw there we now have the same issue with vaping okay yeah. and we've got a whole new generation of vapors and there needs to be a complete new education campaign like we did with smoking that took decades by the way to shift that so there'll always be something you know, that will fill those holes because, as you said, Jill, there is money to be made. So, I don't know. I, th- I think it's just important to have conversations like this because if there's that much money to be made and these are huge companies like the alcohol companies, tobacco companies, online gambling companies, you take a certain portion of their profits away, they're going to find a, a way to, to fill yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can trust the alcohol industry in any way, shape or form, but I think the way that culture changes is one person at a time and it changes through storytelling. People, you know, in my circle of friends... Most of my friends still drink, but some of them are now starting to drink less or, or, or look at what I'm doing. And, and yeah, and I think it's it's not, as I've said, I'm not evangelical about sobriety. I All my friends, m- most of my friends do drink. But I think when they start to see the benefits, you know, a friend of mine said to me recently that she'd never seen me in all the years she'd known me. And I'm someone who has you know, publicly talked about my battles with mental health. She said she'd never seen me with such a strong sense of self. And I think this is the, the, the joy of sobriety that can have that contagion effect. Like for me, it's not that sobriety removes your problems. It actually illuminates them. But if the worst thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings, then the best thing about sobriety is you get to feel all your feelings. So when you're not numbing yourself with alcohol anymore, you start to feel joy more deeply your relationships are strengthened and you start to feel a connection to yourself in a way that you didn't before and that is something that's infectious i think people look at that and go oh i want a bit of that and i think that's the way that sobriety is is moving because people are seeing it in their friends and family and thinking oh i might give that a go Congratulations, Jill Stark, on the re-release of your book. There's multiple texts that have come in saying that when they thought about maybe stopping drinking or at least reducing their alcohol that they turned to your book and now 10 years on, it has been re-released higher sobriety. Thank you so much for joining us on the Conversation Hour. It's been lovely. Thank you. John O'Kendall, as always, thank you. I'll be back with you tomorrow.